Welcome to the EIM Global Podcast, the place where we speak to experts from across education, academia, and industry, so we can contribute to the professional conversations happening in our community now. The discussions we have and insights shared by guests help develop our own thinking and work, and hopefully spark further dialogue for other educators too, as they reflect on their practice and the students they work with. Today's episode is a special edition of the EIM Global Podcast, as it's hosted by my colleague, Dr. Kevin House, our very own EIM Education Futures architect, who welcomes Professor Bill Cope to the show. Bill is a professor in the Department of Education Policy, Organization and Leadership at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Bill and his colleague, Professor Mary Kalansis, are directors of Common Ground Research Networks, a not-for-profit organization developing and applying new publishing technologies. His research interests include theories and practices of pedagogy, cultural and linguistic diversity, and new technologies of representation and communication. Kevin explores Bill's work around the affordances of technology-mediated learning environments and covers ground from worries with cognitive load theory to changes to assessment practices. There's lots to enjoy here, and it's something of a meaty one for us at EIM, as Bill's work has been a big inspiration in lots of areas we are pursuing as a group. So, without further ado, let's dive right in. Bill, this is a great moment for me. I've often enjoyed our chats and I really love the work that you and Mary do. So really warm welcome to Repurposed. In this episode, I'd like to explore at least two areas with you. I think, first of all, I would like to dig into the description that yourself and Mary have around reflexive pedagogy. I think it's a timely and very pertinent in the current world we live in that we have a way of reframing what pedagogy is. And second, I'd like to explore some of your thoughts around the topic of measurement, which is something I've been talking to most guests in the series about in in some sort of shape or form. So if I could kick off the first question, really, in your recent work with Mary, thinking specifically about the, the opening chapter you did for the digital learner towards a reflexive pedagogy, you guys have argued that modern educator needs to be able to move adeptly between the mimetic, didactic, constructivist and connectivist pedagogies. And I I found that really interesting because so often, as you're probably well aware, in education, people love to gravitate towards a polarity. So you're either in some sort of conservative camp or in some sort of progressive camp. And I think much of what you try to describe is that really all of those things have value. And I wondered for our listeners, if you could describe what you believe to be the relationship between curriculum technology and the notion of reflexive pedagogy. Okay, so just on the pedagogy front, you know, we we hear these words kind of bandied around constructivism, connectivism, you know, these are kind of words which describe pedagogical approaches and which seem to be kind of brands or they almost sound brand-like at some of the time. But, you know, one of the things we're, we're arguing is that good pedagogy involves a repertoire of different types of different types of activity. So, you know, if we go through some of the big classifiers of different types of pedagogies, you know, you mentioned those words, mimetic means essentially copying, you know, transmission models of learning, which are about various forms of memorization. So, you know, you you delivered a pile of content um, in the curriculum, and then you do a test to see what you're able to remember of that definition of learning in that environment is long-term memory and long-term memory actually is not forever it's until the day after the exam often that comes with pedagogies which are didactic and in english didactic has a series of connotations around authoritative telling somebody's telling you things you're sitting and quietly listening to what you're being told that's you know the kind of didactic when people use the word didactic it has those kinds of connotations it doesn't in european languages by the way, but in English it it does. So, you know, we have these kinds of traditional models of learning which are regarded as problematic in the modern world for a whole lot of quite good reasons they're regarded as problematic and they're problematic by themselves. When we come to constructivism, it's a real difficult idea actually. People use it in a kind kind of a cliched way and what they do is they say, oh, there's the constructivism of Piaget, which is kind of psychological constructivism, and that is the, the constructivism of Vygotsky. So I'm just doing a Cook's tour, by the way, of all the pedagogies yep. there are in the world, a very quick Cook's tour. But in fact, this conversation is actually strangely really flawed because Vygotsky never used the word constructivism, although it was a, a word 
in use in Russia at the time for other purposes like, you know, architecture and, and art and various things. Never used the word and, in fact, ran a pretty strident critique of Piaget. They were, they were contemporaries, but unfortunately Vygotsky died as a very young person. So constructivism for me is really just Piaget. And what's wrong with Piaget? Well, what's right with Piaget is a lot of interesting stuff, which is he says that, you know, the learning process is one of accommodation and assimilation. You, you know, you find something new, you encounter something new, you assimilate that into your own learning processes, and, and you do that by re-internalising whatever it is you've discovered whatever cognitive thing it is you've discovered. But there are lots of problems with that. I mean, it's a very individualistic notion of learning, which is just me me in my head, the stuff that I'm doing. It's very cognitivist, which is oriented to me getting stuff that I can think when a lot of what we do in life involves action and doing and so on. And in a way, it's quite different from Vygotsky, who never called himself the constructivist, who has this idea of, social environments, the scaffolds that teachers put in place, for example, and the interactions with peers. And it has many ways of talking about the social. Uh, interesting stuff around the way in which, you know, you speak to yourself in a speech um, and that becomes externalised as social speech. And the two things are different and how they connect. So they're very different kinds of people. So there we've got all these pedagogical traditions and what Mary and I have tried to do is not dismiss any of them and we've built a kind of a classification scheme if you like which says look you know this and this is the reflexive pedagogy thing which is you know what's appropriate for the moment what's needed for the moment but always cycles of reflecting on what's needed so reflexive is this idea of cycles of reflection, if you like. So what we say is, look, we want some of all of this, you know, like, I mean, there are times when stuff which is didactic is pretty important, you know, which is, I know nothing about something, just tell me. Don't put me in an experiential environment where where I'm just going to have to figure out for myself because it's inefficient and it's boring it's, and it's bewildering and a whole lot of things. So, you know, there's a critique of experiential learning which goes along those, along those lines. So what we, we say is, you know, in the kind of pedagogy we've been developing, we say, look, there are four kind of macro knowledge processes which kind of align with each of these different traditions of pedagogy. So one is experiential, which is, you know, kind of learning by doing things and that might be doing things which you brought in from your life, which you're now articulating in the school context in order to reflect upon that. Or it might be immersion in something which is new and strange, where the Vygotsky notion of zone of optimal development is a really, really useful idea, to be quite frank, which is if you're going to do something strange and new, it's got to be within a zone of intelligibility. It can't be just doing something which is crazily off the planet, which you don't understand. It becomes overwhelming, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. But there is also a place for what we call conceptual teaching and learning, which might be well be didactic. So in other words, conceptual teaching and learning might involve concepts, you know, like, you know, we're talking about the solar system, which has planets and whatever, you know, we're talking, you know, any subject. So what we have is we have disciplines which are built around these conceptual frameworks. And what we might want students to do is to understand the concepts, be able to apply the concepts, and sometimes teaching that didactically or moments of didactic learning is not a bad thing. The other aspects of these, the big four are experiential, conceptual, analytical, and applied. So analytical is perhaps thinking critically about things. It's figuring out how things work. Um, and then applied means, okay, let's, let's make this, let's make something, let's make a knowledge artefact that's applied in the world. So our argument is that each of these kind of has elements of these historic practices, all of these historic practices of pedagogy, and that what we as teachers need to do is develop a repertoire where we move backwards and forwards, hence the kind of notion of reflexive. A question that I've had when, when engaging with the work was it's not just for different types of learning that you might want to engage with using different tools in that toolkit, as it were. It might even be for different types of learner, right? So some learners yeah. might find that they can 
chunk things better, more efficiently in ways that it's more tangible for them using a didactic method, whereas some others might want to have more scaffolded inquiry, right? Yeah, I mean, the repertoire idea is repertoires are good for teachers and they're good for students as well. So the idea wouldn't be to say, oh, this is this kind of learner, therefore I'm going to just do this. Uh, you know, a mixture of these things is good for everybody. It's, it's good. So in other words, if you're good at one particular way of thinking things through and you like one particular learning style, it's not to say you should be typecast as that. No, of course not. So, you know, one of the problems with the literature on learning styles, it says certain kinds of learners learn this way, you know, and that therefore we're going to give you the kind of learning that works best for you. Okay, fair enough to some degree. But in fact, this whole repertoire of types of learning is good for everybody. That's the kind of idea. The idea is repertoire. But, you know, unlike kind of Bloom's taxonomy, Bloom's taxonomy has a couple of things going for it, which, you know, it's, it's an interesting and very powerful and widely used way of classifying kinds of learning, but it's heavily, heavily biased towards cognition, just cognition as opposed to action and embodied learning and, and you know, a whole lot of stuff like that. And also it's a kind of a hierarchy which says, you know, here's the easy stuff, do this first, and then you move to the, the harder stuff. Whereas what we're saying is, look, you might start at any point. So we represent these knowledge processes in a kind of a, a circle with four quadrants. You know, you might start at any point, but please move to the other, extend, ex- extend the repertoire. So there's no necessary starting point and there's no necessary hierarchy of learning activity types. We just wanted to build a way to classify these these different types as a way to call out, by the way, why would you do that? Well, you do it as a kind of a checklist, you know, have I covered all bases? <laughs> what else could I do? How could I extend the repertoire? How could I deepen the knowledge that the learners are encountering? Education is one of those environments, right, where I guess the institutional aspects of working as an educator means that there's a a frenetic busyness about the day, which means you want to grasp bite-sized pieces of some quite fundamental and deep concepts sometimes just because you don't have the bandwidth to necessarily engage with getting a good and comprehensive understanding of something. Not too dissimilar, perhaps, to the student experience in many kind of heavy curricular environments. But I know one of the things that's I found interesting lately that's going around again, I engaged many years ago with with Sweller's work and Kirshner's work around cognitive load theory and the simplicity of that kind of mechanized approach to understanding what memory is like, I was I was always a bit dubious of. And it's interesting to see it coming back now, particularly in the UK context, I've noticed there's been this reinvention along with metacognition being used in a very specific way, I'd say a possibly politicized way, alongside cognitive load And this notion that there's a very simplistic way of understanding how the brain works, which I think many of the neuroscientists would probably have problems with that kind of cognitive or cognitive stroke behavioural approach, psychological approach. I wonder what your thoughts are. Okay. I mean, look, it's interesting that this stuff is, you know, is having a comeback. Uh, In a way, the Sweller and Kirsten stuff is very, very much the old model of didactic pedagogy, and particularly that word mimetic. It's about copying, and the evidence of copying is in long-term memory. They very, very explicitly say their definition of learning is long-term memory. Now, a couple of points about this, by the way, a point about memory and a point about cognitive load. We're in an environment now where our memories are just completely inadequate to the tasks that we need to do. So to give you an example, a very interesting area I've been working for a few years is is actually medical education, which is educating doctors, right? And the pedagogy is very much the Kirshner and Sweller stuff. It's about long-term memory. So you go to a pile of darn lectures. You've got this horrific textbook. There are quizzes all the time where you're discussing, you know, the answers to questions which have A, B, C, D answers, and then you do a test. Which, sees, which is about what you've remembered. The problem is that in the domain that's medicine, which is very, very complex, there are kind of standardised schemas which describe what's happening in, in medical conditions. 
And by the way, these are used for medical records. They're used for insurance purposes to classify what the hell happened in a service encounter. And there's so much stuff that it cannot be remembered. And what people do is they look it up. So you've got an iPad, you've got a phone, and why the hell do you need to remember this stuff? What we really need to get happening in doctors is not long-term memory, but uh, navigational capacities, how to use these informational architectures, which are literally in their hands. And then the real aim is how does one then do clinical, critical clinical reasoning? How does one apply that knowledge in medical, in actual context? So what you do is, in fact, what medical education ends up doing is it ends up testing long-term memory, not medicine, right? And people who are good at tests and good at remembering stuff do well and become doctors. Well, you know, we want them to be people who are able to use these resources, which are now digital and at hand and available, and it's there's too much stuff. It can't be remembered. No matter how good your memory is, it can't be remembered. There's just too much of it. And every time these kind of classification schemes and encyclopedias get revised, it gets more complicated. There's more and more stuff. And one of the things, the phrase that Mary and I have that describe our new environment is we have these cognitive prostheses. You know, I mean, I used to remember quite a lot of people's telephone numbers. And I basically can't remember any telephone. So even people who are close family members who've got new numbers, I don't bother trying to remember their telephone number because there's a name in my... I've got this cognitive prosthesis which remembers it for me, right? Yeah. You know, in a way, a focus on memory in education, this is the critique of Sweller and Kirshner, is crazy because... A, memory is now impracticable given the world that we live in, and B, you don't need it, right? What you need is other stuff, which is capacity to navigate knowledge environments, capacity to critically discern what's rubbish and what's what's important, to make judgment in the in the case of a doctor, you know, look, it's a, what, is it this or is it that? And, you know, it's a judgment call with, which has consequences. That's critical thinking. That's not memory. That, that's the first critique of that. No, I was going to say, for me, it leads into the very powerful influence for us with SE21 and developing the human literacies curriculum, as we call it, was leaning on your work around the notion of multiliteracy. So for me, it's that it's the layers of complexity and the connectivity between ideas. And really, that's kind of what you're getting at, right? Right. Now, next thing, cognitive load. Cognitive load theory is, only, is really only about finding times when there's too much cognitive load, right? Because, you know, too much cognitive load, you know, they're dumping a whole lot of stuff on you, you've got to remember. Don't forget it's a memory paradigm and you can't remember it all, right? That's that's cognitive load. What's exactly the right amount of material dumped on you such that you will remember it, right? Now, in fact, you know, my argument is uh, the cognitive load problem in education is actually lack of cognitive load, right? So if we think of the traditional architectures of learning, If I'm sitting to a lecture, listening to a lecture, I'm listening to somebody speaking, right, or I'm even sitting in a classroom where one person is answering the teacher's question at a time, one person talking at a time, I can think a lot faster than that, right? That's pretty bad, pretty hopeless cognitive load. And what we've become really used to and the skills that we have now is you know, if you look at a social media feed, we skip through this thing very quickly. We we pick things out, we find things, we skip over things. And all of these new media mean that these traditional mechanisms of forcing memory down your throat are actually suboptimal cognitive load, right? And in a way, what we want is we want environments where students can you know, you know, I think what we want is excessive cognitive load in environments where you can slow down if you want to, you can jump forward if you want to, you can, where there's more control over, you know, it's not the teacher that's controlling the load, it's the student which is which, which is regulating the load. Now, that's not what they've got in mind at all. And I think the biggest problem in education is actually not enough. Otherwise known as, it's boring. That's interesting. Right? It's boring. <laughs> A lot of what happens in classrooms is boring. And it really is boring. And the reason why it's boring, you know, compared to WhatsApp and TikTok and whatever, it's hopeless. The cognitive load's hopeless. So, yeah, that's that's my argument. So that's, in a sense, suggesting that we've got a lot more cognitive capacity than some of their conclusions from their, their early research, yeah. 
Absolutely. And look, to give you an example, I'll give you an example now. I'm going to compare oral classroom discourse, and I use the word the way Courtney Caston does, which is she has a book called Classroom Discourse. I'm going to compare conventional classroom discourse with a discussion board. And I'll, I'll, I'll just to show you the difference, right? So conventional classroom discourse is in, in Courtney Caston's kind of paradigm is uh, initiate, respond, evaluate. The teacher says, okay, remember we're doing the solar system a minute ago, we'll do the solar system. The teacher says, what's the outermost planet in the solar system, right? And the kids all put up their hands. And of course, only one kid can answer the question because we've got to move on to the next one. We couldn't have you all answering the question because that we, you'll be saying the same damn thing. And we only go to a second kid in case the first kid gives the wrong answer. And, and, and that kid's a proxy for only one answer that can be given. So the kid puts up their hand and it's always the wrong kid, by the way. The person who answers is always the last person that should be answering. It's the keenest, the brightest, the smartest, and there are Australian swear words that can, can describe, describe that kid. <laughs> Right, and I won't use any of those words. So that kid puts up their hand and they say, oh, it's Pluto. And the teacher says, which is initiate the question, respond, the kid, and then the teacher evaluates. And the teacher says, yes, that's correct. Thank you very much. And we move to the next question. That's classical classroom discourse. Okay. Now, what you can do in a discussion board is you can actually put up a solar system and blah, 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 you know, a video of the solar system and you can ask people to discuss it and blah, 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 blah. And what you can have is everybody answering the question and everybody seeing each other's answer. And the minute you do that, by the way, differences start to come out and some smart kid's going to say Pluto is no longer officially a planet because that happened sometime recently, right? Don't ask me the reasons why I'm not an astronomer. Um, so in other words, you know, there aren't unequivocally correct answers to things and, and the classic classroom discourse assumes that. Now, cognitive load. If kids are giving a 20-word, 30-word answer, in fact, they're not just sitting listening to one answer, they're watching an activity stream with 30 answers. And they're noticing the modulations and the differences. They're noticing, they're getting some ideas from other people's comments. And in fact, what they're doing is they're, they're processing 30 comments. There's 30 kids in the class, they're processing 30 comments all at once. Now, you can do that in an in-person classroom as well. It's kind of fun to do, and kids talking over it, but kids typing their answers at the same time. And there's a much richer conversation going on than it's ever possible in a traditional classroom. And there's heaps of cognitive load, and in fact, 30 answers is more than you could normally deal with, but we've got used to knowing how to deal with 30 answers. And you've got engagement there on a much wider scale and you're in the kind of Vygotsky's social domain, right? You're in that zone. Yeah. And by the way, you've got learning analytics. And the learning analytics is such that we are going to assess this. So it's not just the teacher gets a subjective opinion of that horrible kid that puts up their hands, the smartest and most keenest kid in the class, right? It's not just that. We're going to actually have data and we're going to say, we're going to evaluate your answers, right? And you've got to answer. You know, everyone has to answer. And we've got learning analytics in the background, which means that every little interaction feeds into an assessment, right? And that means everything's high stakes, Right. It means everything's important. That's a really great segue, actually, into my second question. So I'm going to dive straight into it. In a time when many of the traditional exam based, I like to think of the measurement events have been disrupted somewhat. There's a lot of people asking what importance these types of assessment may play in the future. So I wondered if you might describe for us what you envisage to be the landscape for evidencing and the measurement of student learning for the future. Right. Well, look. Measurement is really important because it's the dog that wags the educational, you know, sorry, it's the tail that wags the educational dog. That's the reality of it. Um, So, you know, if we can't get a reform, reform and assessment, we can't reform education, essentially that. So, you know, we were just talking about the memory stuff. You know, what conventional assessment is, it's an unusual event, a strange event. I mean, imagine having to go into a room and, and do stuff purely from memory without books to look up, without people to talk to, you know, where does that happen in the world? It's strange. And, and then, then because we want to count the damn things, we give you A, B, C, D answers, select response, which is a, a just, you know, you learn to play a game of trickery, which happens, there's nothing like it that happens anywhere else in life. So the game of trickery is this. We have four items, one of which is correct. 
But the, the most interesting thing is the, the distractor items. And the distractor items are designed to be tricks, which are things which on some measures are correct, right? And on some, you know, have something kind of intuitively right about them and that therefore that you're likely to land on incorrectly, right? You know, you, you don't have distractor items which are off the planet, something totally off the subject because that would make it too easy. Now, so what it's very, and look, this is the classic thing. We all know this existentially, this feeling of doing tests, which is you can have really sound reasoning where you land on a distractor item and you can have stupid reasoning, wrong reasoning, where you happen to luck upon the right answer. So there's no correlation between, you know, like there's not, a, it doesn't mean you actually know anything in particular. So, you know, one of the things is we built these very strange games, but also they're games that happen at the end of learning. I mean, people say there's more formative assessment. There isn't more formative assessment. A lot of formative assessment is just more summative assessment. Yeah. The end of the week, we do a quiz. Okay. That's not formative. That's summative. Right? Formative, it means you can change your answer and change your mark and it contributes to learning. Most assessment, even the ones they call formative, is still summative. Right? So it's a kind of a linear process. You know, remember our theme about recursive? It's not recursive. It's linear. I do my work and the answer is B+. And you know what I do with E+, B+, I just say I'm a bad person and I promise to be better going forward. It doesn't contribute to my learning in any direct way useful kind of way. And also it's about learning as a set of externalities, a set of external rewards, quantified as numbers, points, scores, whatever. So it's extrinsic motivation. So everything about that is a, a problematic system. And existentially, we know how problematic it is. We hate tests. We feel bad about them. Or we think, look, I'm clever. I'm good at tests because I can play this distractor game quite effectively. So that's the kind of regime. Now, this is what's changing at the moment. And what's changing is the universe of uh, big data and the universe of artificial intelligence. So what a test is, it's small data. It's just one tiny sample, a three-hour test at the end of a course. You'll be doing this damn course for a year and then you do a three-hour test. Or I've been studying this stuff all week and then I do a 10-minute quiz. Right? It's a very, very, it's a poor, limited data set. Now, if we've got kids who are doing their work and representing their knowledge in these digital environments. So doing their work means basically the job of knowledge representation, which is we're having this classroom discussion. And we've got learning analytics grinding away in the background. We're doing projects which might be peer reviewed where we've got peer data, we've got uh, peer judgment, which is interestingly, if you have enough peers doing evaluation, it's pretty close to what an expert would uh, judge something to be. That's just the kind of theory of the wisdom of the wisdom of crowds, which is now part of the internet universe. Um, we're used to this world, by the way, of reviews, and you know we read all the reviews on Amazon products, and you know, and then we review the reviews too, you know, and the, the top reviews go to the top. So we can do reviews and reviews in these environments as well. So we can build this incredibly social environment where there's a lot of peer judgment going on, a lot of self self judgment going on. The teacher can get involved as well. So. With a mix of, well, essentially what we're doing is we're building up big data, right? So to give you a little example, we build learning analytics that go in our CG Scholar software. If we use it in one of our courses, um, so let's say I've got 30 students in a course uh, and they're doing all this stuff in a digital environment, that's where all their knowledge and work, the wall of what they do gets represented, all their knowledge is captured. At the end of an eight-week course with 30 students, we might have, and I know exactly the number because we see the number, we might have two or three million data points across 20-something different data types that we're analysing. Now, we can give students feedback all the way where they can see how they're going as well. Um, so in other words, this data we can make, we can expose to them. So I, as the teacher, can see the whole class and where they're going in relation to each other, but each student can have exactly the same data that I have. So there we are, we've got, you know, millions of data points going on, but amongst these millions of data points, thousands of those are very small cycles of feedback, which is somebody makes a comment on your post, somebody gives you a rating on a peer review rubric, and so on. So across these 20-something things, there are thousands of very small cycles of feedback, all of which you can use in the moment to improve the work that you're doing. 
Now, what we can do ex post facto at the end of the exercise is we can then analyze that data and we've got progress metrics. But the big difference is that because the students are getting incremental progress metrics, so we have a thing called an aster plot, which is this colorful daisy and all the petals are different things that are being evaluated and the, and the petals grow as time goes on. We say, look, okay, when you reach this particular point in terms of our learning objectives in this in this course, you're, you're going to get an A or an A plus. And it's up to you. Just keep on working. Keep on doing stuff. Watch how you're going. Keep on improving what you're doing. And you don't reach the end and then discover goodness me, I've got a B plus, because in fact, you're in control of your own grade. It's the mastery learning idea. We're going to set these performance objectives. And because we've let you into the class, it means we've let you in on the assumption that everyone can perform. So this is actually big data, you know, and by the way, what it's doing, it's achieving stuff, which no teacher could achieve. How could we as teachers give 10,000 pieces of actionable feedback on the fly immediately a learning experience we couldn't right and how is we you know when we get a test result it's called 76 whereas here we've got millions of data points which are so it gives validity to the strength of it now here are the differences right instead of the test being a strange thing the test actually disappears right so what we've got is we've got everything is assessment right? Everything is these small pieces of actionable feedback. Our progress data is based on the big data we see underneath. And it's the end of the test. We don't need that form of assessment because we've got something far more valuable. Instead of this small sample, the test, the sample is everything. We're looking at everything you do. We're assessing everything you do all the time along the way. So this fast is a kind of a, a big shift and with the research and development work we've been doing, we've been building this environment which does this and it works. And by the way, apropos of cognitive load and the measurable self, you know, we've got our Fitbits sitting on our wrists and we've got our social media feeds where we see how many of our people have liked what we've just said. Um, this is the, the the era of obsessive measurement where we love the measurements. They're called, they're, they're on the new social kind of whatever, you know, <laughs> along the way. Well, that's, you know, our learners like it too because it means they're completely in control of what they're doing and they've got data which summarises where they're up to and what they're doing and what they've achieved. So, you know, for us, this is a huge shift, a big, big shift which the technology is made possible. So we're not talking about shifts which educators haven't wanted to do all along. People have wanted to do formative assessment. People have wanted to do collaborative learning environments. People have wanted to do peer-to-peer. -peer. It's just been logistically tricky. Harder work than the stuff that Kirshner and Sweller say, which is we're going to feed you stuff which you remember. So, you know, it was harder work before, but now the technologies have just made some old aspirations possible. It's really, yeah, it's a great description uh, of the direction. And I think for me, it's made me think about the other aspect, because obviously, as you know, I work largely in a pre-tertiary environment, working on a concept high school and having conversations with other schools that we have, like Green School Group and so forth, around how do you create different ways of creating pre-tertiary credential capital. So, of course, that world that you're saying is is literally at our fingertips even if it's not mainstream yet it's kind of micro formative right and, yeah. and over a period of time you can evidence learning to a specific standard but of course the other aspect of the regimes of industrial standardized education we've lived with for so long one of the other reasons it is it's there is because it's a sorting mechanism right and i just wondered in the classroom of the future as we start to use more ubiquitous technology to do such kind of micro formative work have you guys ever thought about in your own situation at the university of illinois for example what would what would sifting look like look one of the arguments is that, that schools go out of their way to insist on inequality and what, what do i mean by that you come into a class because everyone it's presumed is going to do be able to do it, yes? So so what you then do is you put people across a normal distribution curve. So, you know, what we do in education is we kind of compound the problem by insisting, insisting there's going to be inequality of outcomes in the class. Now, what's clear is that not everybody's going to be able to succeed 
in the same way and at the same pace. That, that, that's clear. But that doesn't mean that everybody can't succeed. So Benjamin Bloom, who was the creator of this notion of mastery learning, long time ago, actually, 1968 or so, uh, his idea was instead of bringing people in and then forcing them across the normal distribution curve, how can we push the curve? How can we get more people to succeed in the class? So what he said was, you know, he set up a whole lot of strategies which in those days were logistically hard work, which is group work and special tutoring and, you know, um, group work where more able peers can help less able peers, specialised tutoring where you can pick up that one student needs specialised help. So he built a whole series of strategies around mastery learning which were basically never really implemented that much because it involved work and money. So what we've got now with these digital environments is the possibility of doing something different where you can, yes, at a certain point in the class, some kids are going to be ahead of others, but the rest can catch up. Right? There's no reason why, and in a way, they might not catch up, but if they don't catch up, it won't be anyone's responsibility except the person themselves because you've given them the opportunity to catch up because you've been very clear about all the, the micro steps, all the expectations, and you've given them data, given them access to data all the time about how, they, how they're doing. So, you know, one of our arguments is that mastery learning was always expensive and hard to achieve, but now there's no excuse not to do it. So what does that mean about society? Well, you know, if you say that schools historically were tailored to unequal societies and what they did is they got students to internalise their own failure, which is I'm not very good, therefore I'm, I'm destined for a particular type of job, or I'm great, and therefore I'm destined for another type of job. Well, you know, the, the frame of jobs in the world, which is changing, you know, which is there's with increasing automation, and that even jobs that were once considered menial now involve technology, which involve, involve teamwork, involve all sorts of human soft skills. There's a lot of stuff like that where you know, we should be anticipating a world, you know, as educators, it's our responsibility to anticipate a world of greater equality rather than a world of persisting inequality. Uh, and now we have the tools to do that. Uh, that's really interesting because I've been reading some work recently by Sianna Moran and she talks about life purpose and basically trying to centre a core value in, in education around really, in particularly in compulsory education, about trying to create environments for students to not just accumulate some of the more traditional areas of knowledge, skills and dispositional traits, but also seeing if it could be the play space to figure out, well, what areas do you find give you a sense of purpose? I know in some quarters it's called passion, but I think she means something broadly similar in terms of how do I define what my next steps are to be in adult life that actually give me a sense of purpose and for her she's suggesting that creates more equity and more diversity and an appreciation of diversity not being about someone being better than someone else because of some material or credential attributes that they've got yeah and look you mentioned this idea of purpose i mean one of the interesting things about this moment or the distressing things about this moment is that it's a moment of existential crisis on, on all sorts of levels as well. So, you know, at the moment, you know, here we are at the end of COVID and people don't want to go back to work. I mean, in the United States, I don't know whether other parts of the world, but where I am at the moment, you know, there's a incredible labour market shortages and people are just not wanting to go to work. They're not wanting to do rotten jobs. That the, a whole lot of measures of existential crisis like you know, drugs and suicide and whatever are getting not better. So one of the things is how do we create, oh, actually, and one very, very interesting statistic, a book that I read very, very uh, recently, a really great book, wonderful book actually, by with a depressing title, which I'll tell you in a second, by two Yale University economists, one of whom is a Nobel Prize winner, and the book's called Deaths of Despair. And what it's about, it's about the opioid crisis in the United States is one thing. It's around various health crises. And its starting point is that a surprising thing's happening for the first time since in modern times, to be quite frank, where even before COVID, the American life expectancy was beginning to go down. So it's life expectancy is consistently mm. been going up for the last century. Now it's going down. What are the reasons? Well, 
its debts of despair, which include you know, the opioid crisis here, um, which are you know, prescription drugs which people are taking and overdosing on, its suicide, its also health-related illness um, stuff where people are obesity, eating terrible food because it's affordable and that kind of stuff. So what they do is they try and take it apart demographically and they take it apart by race and gender and all the rest. And, you know, the, there's only one variable that counts and that's whether you have a four-year degree or not in the US. It's the idea of a four-year degree. And in other words, that yes, fewer blacks have a four-year degree, fewer Hispanics have a four-year degree, so they end up being hit really badly. But if you're black and you've got a four-year degree, you're not in this demographic. And conversely, if you're white, you are in the demographic and you're not doing well. And that's the biggest variable. Wow. Now, that means, you know, one of my arguments is that four-year degrees are not just about getting a better job. Yes, they're about that, but they're also about building ways to understand the world, ways to cope with its difficulties, ways to be political or philosophical about your life uh, in ways which are productive as opposed to ways which are just screamingly unproductive and or counterproductive. So, you know, the purpose thing is that one of our big roles as educators is about developing senses of purpose, which is called knowledge, it's yeah. called science, it's called faith in each other, in other human beings around us, some of whom are experts when we're not, and all those kinds of things. So, yeah, I think it's that's a tremendously important issue at the moment. Yeah, that's a really nice reflection, really, on, on I'd never really thought about the fact that, in a sense, it's almost creating a, for a societal good, it almost makes an argument to say, well, with an ageing population, generally, could we even push what's, I don't like the term compulsory, but, you know, the compulsory element of education, almost push it further and make another four years or the potential of another four years if it were engaging and not just dumping content and doing tests as part of a rite of passage for everyone. So you, in fact, effectively learn really up until your early 20s if you did yeah. it in that linear fashion. I know from my, my own perspective, I grew up in the UK. I left school at 16, did a year of trying to accumulate a little bit more credential capital, didn't really work out, went off and did other things for about 10 years. It wasn't until I was 26, 27, I thought, actually, I, I kind of want to know more stuff. And back then, the way the politics worked, I could access higher education as a mature student and had very little financial burden. And for me, that was kind of like rocket fuel. And from there, I went on through a number of different degrees and really have always enjoyed learning. But it had to come at the right time in the right place for me for a bunch of other areas that I've explored elsewhere around. I was learning different things in my life that weren't necessarily in a formal academic space. But it wasn't until a certain point in time where I felt I wanted to engage with that more formal uh, approach to accumulating knowledge and skills. I mean, the institutional problem is that higher education has until now had this very expensive infrastructure, fancy buildings, nice lawns, and, and you've got to have either gone to a residential place, taken time off work to do it because it was on during the day daytime, you've got to have perhaps gone to a residential college where there's lots of uh, dormitories and all that kind of stuff, and, and, you know, most people, that's not practical. So working-class people can't afford that. So the real challenge is how can everybody get a higher education? How can everybody get a fully compulsory education up to a four-year degree without necessarily having to go through that expense? Only the affluent can afford that. So that's why the whole universe of MOOCs, the whole University of Online Education, is that really does present a feasible possibility of, of everybody getting that. And, and the micro-credentialing architectures that are evolving, right? I've been doing a lot of work with you know, looking at digital wallets and what that might look like in the future so that you can add to that throughout your life wherever it feels both affordable you know, financially, but also affordable in terms of the priorities in your life at a certain point in time. So, yeah, I mean, the, the word we use for that is stackability. So, to give you an example, um, my program at the university, all of my courses are available in Coursera and you can do them for nothing. But if you want a little credential to go down the back of your portfolio, my courses are $49 each, right? 
But if you want to then come to the university, you can do a non-degree course, you can do a certificate, you can do a master's degree, and you can do a doctorate with the same courses, right? So the stackability thing is that is to provide people pathways, right? So, you know, that's... And look, in the digital era, that's easy to do. No, I think you're right. It's an unscaling, right, of a very linear blocked model right. of chunking learning intensively in certain institutions at certain points in your life. And I think it's good to see the potential of that unscaling. And I think it's really interesting that architecture you just explained with the courses at Euro. Listen, I've taken way too much of your time. As I, I said to you before, what I like to do with guests at the end is have that little media minute where I ask you some questions about you and what you do in your downtime, really. So I wondered if there's three questions. First one is, would you tell us something that you've read recently that's had a big impact on you? Well, I could recommend that Deaths of Despair book is a really, really good book, but it's, 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 not de- it's not depressing, actually. But the book I'm reading at the moment, actually, is a book by David Graeber and David Wengro called the, the Dawn of Everything. And what's really interesting is there, it, it's this hugely comprehensive book dealing with prehistory and archaeological literature and anthropological literature. So it's trying to build a kind of a global view of things. And their argument is that the coming of so-called civilization, which was the coming of inequality, right? In the classical view, you know, hunters and gatherers for 100,000 years or maybe more lived in pretty egalitarian societies. And then along comes civilization. And what the people do is they get slaves to build pyramids and do other things which are plainly absurd in, in honouring one pharaoh, you know, and this is repeated all over the world. So when you see civilization, it's a sign that a lot of people are getting hurt. So their argument is that, in fact, it's not so simple a story and that what people did is they, some early peoples built cities and towns, some early peoples had agriculture and they maintained uh, egalitarian society. So their argument is kind of that we can still be equal <laughs> and there is evidence of of people living in things that look like civilizations who weren't so unequal, one as unequal as we are. It's a huge, it's a great book, really interesting. Wanders across everything, across Mesopotamia, across you know the Incas and the and the Aztecs and all these other people as well. So it's it's um, yeah, a good book. Wow, that's uh, a broad canvas. I'll be checking that one out maybe for Christmas. The other one. So listening, what? What do you engage with? Do you listen to podcasts, music? What kind of things do you enjoy listening to as a media? I, 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 the whole audio book things really, really caught me. So, in fact, both those books I've just mentioned, I've got them as printed books, but I've actually been listening to them as as, um, as audio books. I walk the dog for an hour every day, so that's what I do. I listen to books while I'm doing that. In terms of music, uh, you know, I've become a bit of a Spotify <laughs> addict and I, you know I just you know this is the 21st century you build you build your own strange and eccentric playlists remember in the 20th century it was the top 40 and you were what you had ran down the throat your throat a bit like sweller and <laughs> yeah whatever yeah yeah who want to ram stuff down students throats for them to remember you build your own playlist. So I, I'm an Australian, so I have a really great Australian music playlist, but I've also got – I divide classical stuff up into little – I listen to everything basically, and I've got a very good Latin playlist and I've got a, a good – I've got a gypsy, gypsy playlist as well. So, <laughs> you know, so I have, that's, what I listen, that's what I listen to. It's, it's a really interesting way, yeah. If anyone wants an Australian playlist, I have an amazing Australian playlist. So there you go, Australian popular music. Yeah, no, we, because we, we're in Singapore, when we did have festivals, quite a lot of Aussie bands would come over here. And I know from years ago, I used to work in a nightclub and we used to get, oh gosh, Men at Work, Midnight Oil, all those guys would yeah. be touring around. And uh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, all of those. <laughs> and I have a lot more as well, so... And actually, one of the things I like about Spotify is the suggestions. So yes. it does have a good – it's the AI has a good sense of suggestions, actually. So I've got a lot of really fantastic, obscure stuff as well, which Spotify has kind of reminded me of, to be quite frank, things I've forgot, half forgotten. I thought, oh, my goodness, I forgot about that. <laughs> and off, off you go. It's a, it's a wonderful new way of consuming because I think back 
you used to go to a record store and it was a pretty fine, it seemed overwhelming, but it was a pretty finite universe. Whereas now, of course, with something like Spotify or Tidal, it, it, it literally is overwhelming. So now the AI says, oh, you like this? Why don't you, you know, I go off on some really great explorations and find some really yeah, new music yeah. that, that I wouldn't have done before because you used to basically go on a wing and a prayer and whether you like the album sleeve or not. Right. So there you go. You're you're adjusting your cognitive load to whatever you whatever you want it to be. And by comparison, how how crappy is the classrooms? You know, which is just a it's the classroom is just the top forty. I think you've got powerful powerful analogy there. I think. So finally, what about watching stuff? What what do you engage with? There? You know what? Of course, like so many other people, uh, I mean, I've been caught up, and well, Mary and I have been caught up listening, watching series, and oh my goodness, some of them are just amazing. And the one we've been watching now, which is now in its third season, is Succession. Whether you've heard uh, of it? Oh yeah, no, a friend of mine Succession put me on is to the. It. Um, is a version of the Murdoch story, actually, to be quite frank. So it's a model of the Murdoch. So it's about a very wealthy patriarch who owns a media company in New York, and it's about his four children who are all vying to become the successors, and he's a hateful person, and the children are all hateful in relation to each other in very complicated ways. All the children are very different, and the business is a ghastly business and blah, 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 blah. So they're busily trying to cover up scandals and... But actually, what we do is we put on the subtitles. I wonder how many other people do this, actually. So it started us putting on the subtitles because uh, we weren't very good at following American vernacular. We've now lived here for 15 years, but even so, you know, we watched, you know, we watched The Wire and I couldn't understand the damn word of it. So we, we put on the subtitles. And now we leave the subtitles on everything, actually. And when you have the subtitles on with something like Succession, you just have to be in awe of the scriptwriters. And with Succession, you need the subtitles on because it's such day before yesterday vernacular swearing, day before yesterday vernacular, you know, turns of phrase and whatever. And it's very hard to hear them. And when you read it, you think, oh, my goodness, these scriptwriters are so good. This is the Shakespeare of the 21st century. And the interesting thing is that it's all, always collaborative writing as well. It's not one person writing. It's a number of people writing collaboratively and what great writing it is. So anyhow, that's what But we – there's one more episode of season three to go next uh, next week. So, But I can recommend it to anybody and, and, yes, turn the subtitles on. And those themes, you referenced Shakespeare there and it's very kind of King Lear-esque, right? The uh, yeah, fundamentals, all that. I suppose, beyond that. Bill, as always, it's been lovely to catch up. Really grateful for you giving me an hour of your time to, to have a chat about these things. And I look forward to the next time we catch up and uh, take care and have a great festive season and a wonderful new year. So that was Professor Bill Cope talking to our very own Dr. Kevin House for the EIM Global Podcast. Thank you, Kevin, for hosting. And to you, Bill, for joining the podcast and sharing your decades of research and thinking into the many ways in which technology can make possible what was not before. You can follow up with Bill via any of his Coursera courses or the New Learning Online website that is a treasure trove of Bill and Mary Galantis' work. Until our next episode, thank you for listening, and don't forget to follow or subscribe so you can stay in touch. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.